Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On today's episode, we're speaking to Mexico historian Nathaniel Morris about his new book, Soldiers, Saints, and Shamans, Indigenous Communities and the Revolutionary State in Mexico's Grand Nayar. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Nathaniel. Thanks for having me. So, with your book, Soldiers, Saints, and Shamans, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, why you chose to write about this topic, and, and what, what makes Nayarit unique, and why you chose to study Nayarit and the Grand Nayar region. Well, Nayarit is an interesting state. It's it's really small, but it's extremely diverse, and it's not quite central or just western Mexico. It borders the west and the north of Mexico without quite being one or the other. Um, and its history is completely tied up with that of its indigenous peoples and their politics. So um, the Nayarit people, um, often known as the Koras, they were the last indigenous kingdom uh, to be conquered in 1722 which is like a full two centuries after the conquest of Tenochtitlan. Um, and that's kind of where the state was born, if you will. Even the name of the state today, Nayarit, um, is named after them. Um, and then it took further shape in the 19th century with a, a rebellion um, spearheaded by indigenous people against the mestizo and sort of Latino state of Jalisco. So rebellion and particularly indigenous rebellion is just really bound up with with the state of Nayarit in in a way that fascinates me. Um, And that's what led me to look at the the history of the Nayarit people. Um, But then a second key fascinating thing is that you can't really understand Nayarit history without looking at their indigenous neighbors in Durango and Jalisco. Um, so the Oadam people and the Mexicanero people and the Wirareca people, which led me to the Gran Nayar, which is the, the wider ethno-geographical kind of region at the center of my book. Um, I mean, it's about the size of the state of New Jersey, relatively small total population, um, which is very, very spread out. Um, and it's about 90% indigenous, many of them uh, still speak very little Spanish. and it just feels very different to the rest of that part of Mexico um, and really kind of special. Um, so yeah, I fell in love with the place and um, wanted to write about it, basically. Okay, great. And so it seems like it's a, it's a region of Mexico that kind of has some unique and interesting geography and history and maybe some of the, the key concepts from this part of Mexico would help us understand Mexico in general. And with that in mind, I wanted to ask, you know, what's the big idea that you want readers to take away from your book? Basically, it's that indigenous communities, however traditional they might appear, aren't actually primitive. They're not our living ancestors. They don't need updating or bringing into the present day. They don't need outsiders to save them. and these have all been state policies over the years um, from we need to conquer, conquer these people, we need to assimilate these people, we need to save these people from their primitive customs, we need to make these people modern. Um, but similarly, they're not kind of perfect societies, they're not ideal communities, they're not 
living some kind of primitive communist dream. Um, these are places that are just as much a part of the modern and contemporary world as, as anyone else, as any other community, with all of the, the problems and internal fissures and deep issues that that might entail. Um, but they're also communities that have struggled really hard and for really good reasons to hang on to their languages, their religious practices, these really distinct forms of political organization and their unique relationships with their own local landscapes. Um, and, you know, these are really distinct aspects culturally, politically, economically of these communities that essentially work really well for local people and for local environments as well. I mean, especially if we're looking at them from a really, really long-term kind of perspective, the fact that these people have been living in, in some ways, fairly inhospitable mountains for thousands of years um, and are still there doing that is, is testament to the value, I think, that their cultures and practices have. Um, and yeah, I'm hoping that my book does a little bit um, to show people that that these traditions, ideas, cosmologies, myths, languages, and, and all the rest of it are modern and important and worthwhile and should be respected and valued. Okay, great. And I, I also wanted to ask you a bit about the process that went uh, into the writing. And I'm wondering... What's the the most interesting experience that you had while working on your research? Um, I mean, the book is based on quite extensive fieldwork conducted over the course of four years of intense PhD study and, um, and then several years on either side of that, um, revisiting these places and um, getting to know them. And so I did lots of quite hard travel, walking and hitchhiking and riding horses to really get to know this land and the people that, that live in it. Um, so I had a lot of very intense experiences with local people, um, especially because these mountains are prime opium poppy growing territory. So, you know, there were occasional run-ins with armed narco convoys and military checkpoints and all sorts of stuff that you know in the UK um, I certainly don't encounter very often um, but the most interesting thing I think um, for me really was taking part um, in the Semana Santa the Easter festival um, up in one of the Nairi communities um, which involved five years of um, heading there every Easter to basically run around um, in a loincloth covered in um, various kinds of traditional paint <laughs> um, holding a, a wooden sword um, and spending three days basically running a, a marathon each day and um, fighting with other dressed up loinclothed young men um, which was definitely not something I've ever done before and probably won't do again um, and was just kind of mind-blowing in, in all sorts of ways um, yeah gave me a, a, a real in-depth um, 
crash course in Quora culture. Okay, wonderful. And I'm wondering, in the over the course of doing your research, who's the the most interesting character that you found out about and wrote about in your book? Um, I mean, there are lots and lots of really interesting characters, um, revolutionaries, um, Indian rebels, drunken teachers. Um, there are lots of of stories in there, but maybe the most interesting of all for me personally is I think probably it's Juan Andres Soto who was an Otadam, Tepewano um, indigenous leader who started off as a kind of pro-government gunman hunting down a renegade revolutionary leader um, up in the mountains he then became the military chief of his community um, and after about five years of serving the government was persuaded to switch sides and back the Catholic Cristero rebels, despite himself being um, a, a fervent practitioner of Otadam religion, which is not particularly Catholic and very much not Orthodox at all. Um, and he basically led the mountains against the state for three years um, before making peace with the state and again becoming a pro-government militia leader. Um, until after a series of tit-for-tat attacks um, motivated by blood feuds and a lust for uh, expanding his cattle herds. He fell out with the government um, and became a rebel once more and until about 1941 um, led these renegade Otadam people um, against the government in the process becoming the last of Mexico's Cristero rebels. Um, ironic for a not particularly Catholic indigenous person. Okay, great. And um, you mentioned uh, a few instances where revolutionary heroes are remembered as having mystical or magical powers. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a few examples of that. Well, Juan Andres Soto is a good example of that. Um, Again, you know, he was fighting ostensibly um, for the cause of the Catholic Church against this anti-clerical revolutionary state, um, while himself being um, a practitioner of various kind of shamanic um, religious practices. Um, and he's still talked about in the region today um, as having amassed this kind of charismatic spiritual power um, either through doing a deal with the devil um, one dark night down in a canyon um, where he was given a massive black horse and a, a sword um, by the devil himself which kind of imbued him with this power or alternatively um, he made a deal with the personification of one of the region's saints um, San Pedro, who through ritual fasting um, and exchanges of um, a certain kind of flower and other plants and, and sort of, you know, all these kind of slightly arcane practices, um, yeah, agreed to give him this kind of supernatural power. Um, I mean, and this is a, a tradition in Mexico, um, in oral stories, traditions passed down about 
all sorts of important men and to an extent women, um, including Emiliano Zapata. You know, there are there are these supernatural stories told about him as well. Um, but at local level, you know, they're that much more kind of evocative and really reflective of um, some of the distinct practices and beliefs and worldviews um, that survive in these these mountainous corners of the country. Mm-hmm. To me, it, it seems like there's something there where it's important to local people to remember the heroes that fought for their community as being, you know, fundamentally different and uh, unique compared to the representatives of Mexico's national government who are attempting to make, you know, forays into their community or to alter the existing political arrangement. Um, and I know that in the in the book, you talk a lot about this immense, you know, cultural, political, uh, economic, and geographic division between the center and Mexico City and these outer lying, remote, and mostly autonomous communities. And uh, it stuck out to me that you you found examples of representatives from the national government in Mexico City who referred to non-Spanish speaking locals as quote primitive or quote profane. And I know that you also talk about indigenous communities that viewed mestizo outsiders with immense suspicion. Um, so overall, we have this dynamic in your book where uh, we see the federal government as being forced to confront a really complex reality that uh, exists in the country's most isolated communities. And I have a, a couple stats that I want to mention. Uh, in modern Mexico, we know that tax collection as a percentage of GDP is only around 16%, and that's about a third as high as in the Nordic countries. And according to one recent report, the World Economic Forum ranks Mexico as 123rd out of 137 countries in terms of institutional strength. So. We know that in Mexico, basically, you have this dynamic where tax collection is very low and in general, government institutions are quite weak. Um, So I'm wondering if we take that kind of context into mind, what three words would you pick to describe Mexico's federal government's relationship with rural communities like the ones you studied? I mean, I guess... If if uh, if a hyphen can join two words together into one, then uh, my three words would be deep rooted, conflicted, and unsatisfactory. Um, to which I'd add, probably for both parties, um, you know, rural communities have been an absolute pillar of the post-revolutionary Mexican state in many ways. They've politically propped up the regime at many of its most kind of intense crises um, peasants have been there to to literally defend um, the revolutionary state and system um, rural communities have also in terms of expelling their inhabitants to the cities have been the you know urbanization and deruralization have been pillars of, of economic growth and development in Mexico and that's a big part of the Mexican miracle they used to call it um, but it's it's a very kind of contradictory relationship um, 
it's definitely not one-sided because I think a lot of historians have have stressed the extent to which the relationship between rural communities, peasant communities, and the state um, is is always negotiated. Um, but at the same time, those negotiations often end up in neither side quite getting what it wants from the relationship, which breeds suspicion um, amongst rural people and kind of condescension um, amongst the urban political elites. Um, and I'm not sure that that's massively changed um, despite AMLO's kind of proclaimed fourth transformation. Okay, great. I know that, um, yeah, I think that some some of those dynamics that you describe in your book kind of resonate with me as being dynamics that, you know, continue to exist and probably will continue to exist, um, for, you know, for decades to come in many areas of, of Mexico. And in my book, I wrote about self-defense groups, cartels, and state security forces in the avocado growing region of Mexico. And I remember that one avocado grower told me something pretty alarming. He said, quote, the government doesn't rule here, but it's under control, unquote. And he also told me, quote, we're stuck between the government and organized crime. It's not a permanent solution, unquote. And recently I've seen Michoacan in the news because of the ongoing conflict there between armed civilian groups and organized crime groups. And one of the things that I've seen is that there is a case where local local people have become so frustrated with the army and the National Guard's inaction to fight organized crime groups that they've set up a barricade around a military base and they've forced uh, the army to deliver food by helicopter to the soldiers that are staying there. But the basic dynamic is that the local people feel like they're on their own when it comes to fighting you know, modern groups of criminals or bandits who are operating in the area and they feel like the army isn't protecting them. And I'm wondering for you, when you see stories like that coming out in the news, do you think that the current dynamic in Michoacan is similar to what you researched in Nayarit? Yeah, there are some very clear parallels, um, especially when it comes to this kind of armed negotiation strategies um, on the part of, of rural communities um, whether that's barricading themselves you know in around a, a military base um, or what we're seeing in, in again in, in Tancitero and other avocado growing parts of Michoacan and also in, in indigenous communities like Cheran and Ostula um, and also throughout Guerrero um, just next door where peasant communities arm themselves or are armed by the state because where these weapons come from you know there are multiple sources um in order to kind of defend themselves um yeah the phenomenon of communal militias um which back in the 1910s 20s 30s 40s um and indeed into the 1970s they were called defensas sociales or defensas rurales um you know, the idea is that they're self-defense forces. That's definitely echoed with the, the autodefensa name these days. Um, and in many ways, they kind of played a similar role in defending the indigenous communities of the Gran Nayar from 
I guess what what is the kind of the, the equivalent of narcos today were these you know bandits um, and kind of armed rebels um, back in the, the revolutionary days um, but in the same way as the outer defenses have done um, often inspired by the need to defend their communities the leaders and um, and just sort of young heavily armed men in general have then assumed positions of kind of inflated power within their communities in ways that have offended other members of, of their rural societies and caused internal conflicts um, there is a tendency towards kind of boss politics caciquismo in rural Mexico um, that is really really important in determining the, the local dynamics of the revolution and remains really important today um, in terms of the course of the drug war um, and all of the other kind of smaller conflicts that are bound up um, with this organized crime um, versus various state institutions versus civilian groups um, versus you know renegade members of state institutions it's all very knotty and complex um, and I don't know whether you can actually try to draw a clear line between one side and the other um, especially as you get down to the really local level um, which is something that I hope I show in my book and that maybe observers today could try to do a bit more of when it comes to um, things like you know the, the Policia Comunitaria um, movement in Guerrero um, or indeed the avocado growers in, in Tancitro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, a lot of these these trends have been going on for, um, you know, over a century in different parts of Mexico. Um, but I'm wondering when you, when you look at Mexico today, I'm wondering what impact has um, President Lopez Obrador had in terms of his policies and the relationship between local communities and the federal government in terms of the context that you describe in your book? Um, well, I mean, his raising of pensions um, and increased payments um, to rural communities, payment of child support directly to grandparents looking after um, grandchildren, for example, um, has definitely made a lot of my elderly indigenous informants very happy. Um, you know, I have heard people calling him Tata Amlo in exactly the same way as as certain people still refer to President Cárdenas as, you know, Tata Lázaro. Um, similarly, Sembrando Vida, the kind of reforestation program that aims to give direct payments to indigenous communities um, in exchange, or rural communities in general, in exchange for their planting, uh, replanting forests that have been ravaged over the last 70 years that the idea is really popular mm-hmm. um, how well Sembrando Vida is working in practice I mean um, I, I can't really say um, I think it varies from community to community um, but so he has some ideas that are definitely popular but as always with the Mexican state and these more rural more remote areas that are poorly served in terms of infrastructure 
um, and in terms of kind of committed um, state official uh, presence, yeah, I don't know, like how well these policies are being implemented, how much they are really benefiting the communities as a whole, as opposed to um, a sort of small clique of, of political mediators, you know, another kind of bunch of caciques, basically. Um, it's too early to tell, but I, I can't say that I'm like massively, massively positive. Um, and I mean, more than anything, AMLO's continued with a policy of the selective killing or capture of um, drug traffickers, um, continued eradication campaigns against rural poppy plantations. Um, and that means the indigenous communities at the center of my research, who, kind of, are, are, are who my book is really about, are still absolutely bearing the brunt of the drug war. Violence has only increased in the Gran Nayar over the last few years. Um, drug trafficking organizations are ever more deeply embedded um, in the local communities. And, you know, not in a particularly happy way in most cases. These are outsiders who have violently enforced control over formerly autonomous um, small-scale drug producers and are basically doing their best to force a kind of really voracious and violent um, new style kind of feudalism um, on, on these groups who previously had grown a little bit of poppy here, a little bit of marijuana there, you know, as cash crops, um, without being any more deeply involved in the nuts and bolts of, of the drug trade um, in its global form. And AMLO has done nothing to kind of lessen um, the impact of, of that on local communities. Indeed, he's doubled down on some of the worst tendencies of his predecessors there in terms of militarization. Okay, so it sounds like we have a kind of paradoxical situation in Mexico where we have some, you know, some very ambitious um, proposals and some sometimes disappointing results when it comes to policies actually being implemented or institutions being built or, or strengthened. And I'm wondering if you had to look at that and put a grade on it. Uh, what grade would you give President López Obrador for his efforts to build up Mexico's government and extend government control into these remote and rural e regions in Mexico? <laughs> Uh, well, I'd give him an eight for presentation, but a four for genuine effort. Okay, wonderful. And for if we had to do the U.S. system of A through F, what would you pick for our U.S. listeners? Um, you know, a, a B plus and and you know for presentation, um, he talks the talk, and the whole idea of the you know the fourth transformation um, is is a, a beautiful one. It works great when he's giving his stump speech. Um, but yeah, he, he's getting a D for me when it comes to actual implementation of really genuinely positive change, um, at least in the communities that I've been working in. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, he's, he's halfway through his um, six-year term. We will see whether post-pandemic um, things pick up a bit. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's something that I see is, uh, especially among foreign observers, there are people that are reading or listening to AMLO's speeches and continue to be very optimistic about his program. 
And then there are people that are studying, you know, the actual impact of his policies uh, at the local level in different communities. And they're a bit more disappointed or a bit more negative in their their assessment. So it seems like there's if maybe there's one big takeaway, it's as you said, there's a, a big a big gap between the presentation and the and the results. Um, and that actually is a great transition to the next thing I want to to talk about. I think that um, your research really highlights the nuance that's required for understanding local dynamics. And in your book, uh, from chapter to chapter, it, it often seems like the battle lines weren't ever really starkly drawn between white and indigenous, religious and secular, and progressive and oppressive communities. And um, right now, it seems like in Mexico and in many other countries around the world, some politicians are working to frame the public discourse in simple and really hyper-partisan terms. And I know that Mexico's President Lopez Obrador has often seemed to embrace a strategy of dismissing his critics as, quote, conservative or corrupt or calling them uh, being backed by foreign corporations, you know, dismissing feminists or dismissing um, human rights activists or environmental activists or marijuana legalization activists as being, you know, illegitimate and, um, you know, not proper critics of his, his honorable intentions as president. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering how does all the research that you've done on local political dynamics affect the way that you view the current tenor of political discourse in Mexico? Well, I mean, Mexico has a long history of um, presidents, you know, talking big. Um, and López Obrador is not the first president to have tried to dismiss all his enemies as conservatives or indeed as misguided and ill-informed. Um, that was the same kind of rhetoric prevalent during the the entire sort of three decades that, that my book describes um, and indeed has, has kind of continued to be a mainstay of presidential discourse, whether it's communist subversion sponsored by Russia, whether it's, you know, negative gringo influences and sort of the decadence of the, the U.S. counterculture influencing um, the youth in negative ways. Um, yeah, you know, these men on the podiums have railed against um, conservatives, enemies within, subversives, leftists, um, primitive Indians, Catholics, I mean, you name it. Um, they have, have named their enemies and um, yeah so AMLO is not the first to do that um, I don't even know whether he's the most extreme when it comes to that there was um, yeah you know th there's been plenty of, of that from from Fox you know um, Peña Nieto has been pretty quick to cast anyone who opposed him as, as a narco even though half of his government were in bed with the drug cartels. Um, maybe the big difference is that AMLO has been more successful in 
getting his followers to actually believe it. Um, and I think social media um, has also kind of been instrumental in marking a change. Um, you know, this discourse is just it kind of it hangs around for longer. And, you know, he does the eminently memeable mañaneras like literally every morning there is a, a, a memed kind of quote of AMLO saying something that may well be quite stupid um, but is repeated um, a thousand times on Twitter within a couple of hours um, so maybe yeah the message just kind of is 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 more powerful is more parroted I don't know I also think a lot of the opposition to everything that AMLO says um, from the the so-called center but i mean kind of often center right is the tenor of that discourse also is increasingly hysterical the mm-hmm. you know the, the tent city set up in the zocalo that ended up blowing away in the wind um is, is a good example again very memeable example of that sort of phenomenon um so yeah it's it's a lot of hot air but maybe i don't know maybe it is um dividing society more um, but Mexico has always been a deeply divided society. So, yeah, I don't know. I try not to worry about that too much. Um, it's disappointing um, as for, for me, someone who identifies, I guess, as um, a fairly left-wing person, that the first self-declared left-winger um, to sit in the president's seat since probably, you know, Lopez Mateos um, is is so deeply socially conservative and outspokenly so um, so often but yeah Yeah, I guess as a historian I have the luxury of cynicism yeah I think I honestly think that having the historical perspective might be very helpful in this particular situation because I think part of the issue is that AMLO himself you know, frames his government as being a fundamental break from the past. And he doesn't kind of consider himself to be one more leader who has six years to implement some policies and do something. He says, you know, before me, there was only corruption and now there's a total change. It's a total revolution. And um, I think that the, the standard that he has set for himself probably contributes to some of the hysteria and the way you know, the way that people are debating his, his um, you know, the things he says every morning and some of his policy proposals um, is discussed in such a hysterical way because it's not viewed as being, you know, just policy changes and minor reforms over the next, you know, three years. It's supposed to be a, a fundamental change that will be, you know, remembered for centuries in Mexico as one of the most, you know, important uh, linchpins in, in Mexico in history. Um, so I think it is super helpful to kind of hear the perspective of historians and just hear like, yeah, well, a lot of the, the discourse that we're hearing today probably sounds somewhat similar to some things that we heard in the, you know, in the 70s or in the 80s or, you know, even, you know, even earlier in Mexican history or probably uh, in the time period that you discuss in your book, there was probably, you know, quite a bit of very heated partisan vitriol being uh 
pushed out uh, at that time more in, more in newspapers than on social media, but it was probably still there and people probably felt felt very strongly one way or another. And maybe it's helpful just to know that, uh, you know, what we're seeing now isn't isn't a total break from that from that history. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of close out here with a with a couple of fun questions. I wanted to ask you that in the in the time that you spent in in Mexico, what is the favorite cantina that you've discovered while visiting Mexico? Ooh. Last time I was in Mexico, um, I stayed with a friend in Milpa Alta, um, in the far, far, far south of the federal district, um, and we crossed from there over the state line into the Estado de México um, to go to a real, real old-school pulqueria um, that produces its own pulque. Um, and I, I don't know its name. I think it was La Bicicleta because the old dude that runs the pulqueria runs a pulqueria because he's too old now to deliver pulque by bicycle to the local villagers. Um, and so, like, they come to him now. Um, but, yeah, an absolutely great spot. There's also the Bar Belmont in Durango, um, founded in 1952, there's often a blind old guitar player banging out local corridos in the corner, um, and it's just you know it's that's romance in Durango right there for you. Okay, great. So two two scavenger hunts for for some listeners to try to find at some point in the future. And um, what about your favorite cafe or coffee shop? I mean, my experience with coffee in, in, in Mexico has been mixed because as well as producing some amazing coffees um, uh, Nescafe is so so prevalent um, but when I'm in Mexico City on the weekend I like to head into the downtown and um, the Cafe Villarias near the Mercado de San Juan um, does some really really great coffee and they also they sell freshly roasted coffee so um just standing next to the place and kind of inhaling gives you that real hit of of proper veracruz coffee um you need on a saturday morning okay wonderful so maybe that would check the box for your favorite smell in mexico um but what about your favorite sight or sound in mexico my favorite sound is still embedded in my brain um, and that is the the sound of these pipes and drums and howls and um, the sound of dust being kind of splatted out from the ground um, when devils whack the the dusty floor um, with their swords and that's that's the sound of the Semana Santa Cora the Nayari Easter celebrations um, up in the, the high mountains of Mexico on the border with Durango um, every year um, yeah all night, all day for, for weeks before the actual fiesta kicks off um, every ranch has its own little kind of gathering and, and you just hear the sort of the, the drums and the pipes and everything building up to this crescendo that breaks out on uh, the Wednesday of, of Easter week um, last all the way through to Saturday. Sure. Yeah, well, that sounds like a, definitely a unique experience and something, to be honest, that I, I hadn't 
hadn't heard of and didn't know about. So I think it's something that uh, listeners can check out and uh, that I can I can check out and try to learn more about in the future. Um, so again, I, I just wanted to say, you know, that I really got a lot out of reading your book. And I wanted to say, you know, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Mexico podcast. Man, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation and the, yeah, really, really interesting conversation. Um, I look forward to continuing that over the coming months, years. Um, and yeah, hopefully having more positive things to talk about next time. So yeah, you know, come on, AMLO. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Thanks so much. Thanks again for joining us for the Modern Mexico podcast. Nathaniel Morris's book, Soldiers, Saints, and Shamans, is available on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you haven't already checked it out, give a listen to the last episode of the Modern Mexico podcast, where we speak to Mexico historian A.S. Dillingham about his new book, Oaxaca Resurgent. The next episode of the Modern Mexico podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.